Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have to spend a little bit of time this morning dealing with some really uh, important things um, related to how you want us to live our life, how you want us to uh, reflect your holiness. And um, I ask, Lord, that you would give us um, just clarity as we spend some time in your word. This is uh, a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of content, and so, Lord, um, just we present ourselves to you and ask that your Holy Spirit would direct us and lead us in uh, in truth, transform us by the renewing of our mind. And I pray this in Christ's name, Amen. And for those of you who are watching uh, this by video on ALC, we are glad you're here. We got a good group this morning here that we're videotaping it, and. Um, I, um, I have been asked to share some, uh, a summary view of the doctrine of sanctification. And I've got about an hour, and I, I might cheat a little bit on that, but about an hour to do what would be a, about a semester class at least, maybe two semesters that we, we would want to uh, spend time on. So it's, it, this is going to be a real summary, summary form. Uh, hopefully you all got notes uh, when he came in, and uh, some of it's filled in for you a little bit, but then there's plenty of room there for, for you to, to fill in. Uh, so let's, let's dive in. I'm going I'm to fly through this. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll have some time for questions, at least for this group here. Those on the ALC won't be, but uh, when uh, the video's done, we'll break it, and then uh, we'll have some time for some questions uh, uh, notice I didn't say answers, I just said questions. <laughs> and um, we, we'll, we'll do that, but uh, we're going to fly through this material. So, uh, take a look at your notes. Uh, sanctification is simply the progressive movement of becoming more like Christ in our daily lives. It is a process by which we become in our practice what we are in our position in Christ. Uh, Miller Erickson in his Christian theology defines sanctification as the process by which one's moral condition is brought into conformity with one's legal status before God. We'll unpack that a little bit uh, here in just a moment. So basically, sanctification is about, uh, about how we become holy, how we defeat sin and become holy. So it really has, how, how, it's about how we defeat sin in our life and how we become holy progressively daily uh, in, our, in our life. So justification, and, and back on January 28th in a, in a sermon I did uh, beginning that discipleship series, I summarized some of these things, so you can go back there if you wanted to. But justification involves how an undeserving sinner gets right with God, how he gets right with God. Sanctification is about how an undeserving sinner lives right before God. Um, so in, in your student notes, and the class notes there, um, just a little uh, outline of justification, sanctification. Justification is the one-time act. Sanctification is the ongoing process. Justification is what's done for us. Sanctification is what's done in us. Justification declares us righteous. Sanctification makes us righteous. Uh, justification has to do with our position in Christ, sanctification, our practice before Him. Uh, justification frees us from the guilt of sin, sanctification from the pollution of sin, 
Uh, justification saves us from the penalty. Sanctification uh, frees us from the power of sin. So uh, it, it, sanctification is a very complex uh, topic because there's so many players involved in it, so many, so many players uh, uh, that, that participate in that process of sanctification. So, um, for instance, um, in your sanctification process, of course, there's God through his Holy Spirit, through his living word, the active role of God, the Holy Spirit, uh, in our sanctification. Of course, then there is uh, my role. My role. Um, and that is, like the old hymn says, trust and obey, for there's no other way. So my walk of obedience, my response of obedience to that. Uh, then there is the role of, uh, of the church. And the role of the family. Uh, really, sanctification starts, it should start, uh, at the family level. Parents helping their kids learn what it means to um, deal with sin and, and uh, learn how to live a holy life. And of course, the role of the church. Uh, it is the one another's, all those one another's, how we are encouraging one another, admonish one another, and, and to pray for one another. We are to be involved in one another's lives. And really, that's the, the, the essence of the authentic fellowship conference that we'll be having. Um, the, the, the role of the church and our responsibility in, in each other's lives. Live a life of isolation, separation. We, we're just going to drift from the Lord. It's the old idea of the ember from the fire. You take it out of the fire, it's soon going to die. Keep it in the fire, it's going to glow hot. The role of the family, the role of the church. And then, uh, of course, there's the role of, of suffering. This is key. And uh, in that sermon on January 28th, I kind of unpacked a little bit about that. Uh, looking at James and 1 Peter, and we won't do that now, but it's certainly the role of suffering where God um, uh, pulverizes us in the crucible of life and the pain and the suffering. And depending, as uh, a great missionary Jay Hudson Taylor said, suffering is either going to press us close to the heart of God or it's going to cause us to run from Him. It's how we're going to respond to it. So um, uh, the various roles. Of course, there's also the role of of, uh, and, and this comes back under God, uh, but it, it's the role of truth. The role of truth. Romans 12, 2, you know, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds that we can understand, that we can come to know uh, what the will of God is. Um, Jesus said, when you know the truth, the truth will set you free, Right? Second uh, Corinthians it says, "Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ." We all have gaps in our thinking. We all have have uh, 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 blank spots in how we view who God is, how we view ourselves, how we view life, and to the degree that those gaps of of our thinking of truth are filled in properly, uh, sanctification, the process of becoming more and more like Jesus, the process of becoming holy. Uh, will uh, we'll, we'll grow, will experience Christ's likeness. On the other hand, as long as those gaps remain, as long as those blocks in our understanding of truth remain, we will live out or act out in our daily experience the ignorance um, 
that has been built into us by our growing up years or, or false thinking that has been implanted in us. And that false thinking, those, um, those ideas about how, uh, who I am or who God is or about how life works, it, it's got to get rooted out. And the truth of God is what does that. You change a person's thinking, you get them to believe truth, you'll change their behavior. And again, authentic fellowship, that's, that's the core of it. It's getting together and speaking truth, uh, speaking truth in love uh, to each other. So uh, in our, uh, our brief time together, I want to simply summarize some key truths that we need to really latch on to if holiness is going to um, define us. If holiness is good, if, if the sanctification process is going to take place in our life, uh, we really need to latch on and understand uh, these key truths. And the best place, or one of the best places to go to understand these sanctification truths is Romans, and especially Romans 6, 7, and 8. Romans 6, 7, and 8. Uh, becoming a Christian, being born again, has far more... Uh, it's, there's far more involved than just having our sins forgiven, removed as far as the east is from the west. It has far more to do with not just what has been removed, but what has been uh, given to us, what, what, what we have received. Uh, and the passage we're going to look at and unpack uh, this morning has to do with receiving a new identity in Christ. Uh, what I want to share this morning uh, if, we, if we don't understand this, then the life of sanctification is just, it's, I just don't think it's going to happen in our life. The growth into Christ's likeness is going to be stunted um, in a major way. So um, take your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And whether we feel like it, or look like it even at times, uh, the Bible says that the moment we trusted him as our Savior, we were radically changed, radically changed. We became new creations in Christ. Romans chapter 6 is going to help us see that. Now, to understand Romans 6, we're going to back up to Romans 5 uh, real quickly. And again, that's in your, the, the notes there. Uh, Romans 5, uh, verses 12 through 21, there are two key principles that we have to understand, um, two, two spheres or realms that everyone in this world is, is in. And those are the realm of Adam or Christ. We're either in Adam, Romans 5 says, or we are in Christ. Everyone, everyone in this room, everyone in this world is going to be either in this sphere, spiritual sphere, or in this one. And I've outlined there a little bit uh, for you uh, what that looks like. So in chapter 5, verse 15, uh, the in Adam sphere, it's spiritual uh, and physical death, uh, whereas in Christ, it's grace and the gift of righteousness abounding. And there's this contrast set of verse 16, judgment and condemnation and justification in Christ. In Adam, verse 17, it's the reign of death. Uh, in uh, Christ, it's the reign of life. And this, this contrast is set up. Verse 18, uh, there's condemnation in Adam. In verse 18, there's justification in life. B by the way, just, just uh, 
that word condemnation in verse, it's found in verse 16 and in verse 18. Condemnation, it's, it's, a, it's a Greek word. Catacrima. Uh, 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 condemnation. It, 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 it's a word that has to do with the sentence that has been imposed upon you by virtue of the fact that you're in Adam, our sin. So God, as it were, in a judicial court of law, has pronounced a sentence upon us in Adam. Everyone in Adam has given, been given a, a, a sentence from the, from the uh, judge of the universe. And that sentence is the serving of sin. Sin is your master. You have been declared uh, a sinner, unrighteous, uh, and Paul develops that earlier in chapters uh, 3 and 4, and again, we don't have time to go there. And uh, we are born in sin, and therefore there's a sentence that is placed upon us, and that sentence is, you are a servant of sin. It's a penal servitude. Um, the, uh, verse 21 talks about, in Adam, uh, sin reigns in death, and grace reigns through righteousness. So we sinned in Adam, Yet we died to sin in Christ. We sinned in Adam and death came and thus sin reigned, but through grace in Christ righteousness came and, uh, and grace reigned. So th- there's this contrast that is set up in chapter 5. That's the value of chapter 5. It shows that uh, we are either going to be here or we are going to be here. And the moment we trust Christ as our personal Savior, the Bible says we are taken out of Adam and we are placed into this uh, spiritual sphere of in Christ. And all those things that are listed become ours. Now, again, we'll unpack that just a little bit more when we get into more thoroughly in chapter 6. Um, so the question then, if this is true, if we were in Adam and all those bad things we were identified with, and then in Christ all these good things we are now identified with, it raises this question, and Paul asks a series of questions beginning in chapter 6. Shall we continue in sin? Shall we live in sin? Shall we walk in the oldness of Adam? Shall we be enslaved to sin? Shall our life be dominated by king sin? Those, that's the logical conclusion. Coming out of chapter 5... If we have been transferred from this realm to this realm, shall we continue in sin? Shall sin dominate our life? Shall we live in defeat and being dominated by king sin? Now, as we move into chapter 6, Paul shifts his thought now from the doctrine of justification to going full-fledged into the doctrine of sanctification about the importance of living a holy life. And um, he's going to answer uh, these questions. So in chapter 6, 7, and 8, let me just give you a real quick um, uh, summary. In Romans chapter 6, in chapter 6, there's something that we uh, must affirm. Truth to affirm. We'll get to chapter 7, and there's some truth we have to admit. And we get to chapter 8, it's some truth that we must allow to take place in our life. Chapter 6, some things that we have to affirm as true about us. 
So let's look at the text. Romans 6 assumes this misunderstanding of the concept of superabounding grace. So he says in chapter 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? It's built off what he just said, is that, well, where there was sin, God showed up and grace just superabounded. The only thing that can overcome and move us out of that circle of Adam into the circle of Christ is his grace. And no matter how the depth of our sin, no matter how badly entrenched in Adam, no matter how bad we were, grace superabounded. It was God's grace that put us over into the circle, into the sphere of Christ. And so Paul says, well, maybe some of you are thinking, well, shall we continue in sin? That grace may abound? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live it? Now, again, verse 1 is asking the question, shall we continue? Shall we remain? Shall we persist in? That's the idea of the word. Shall we, sh- shall we dwell in it? He's talking to Christians. Christians that still struggle with sin, but he's raising the question, well, <coughs> shall we still d- sin? Shall we still dwell in it and persist in it? Shall we still continue in, and there's an article in front of the word sin. Shall we continue in the sin? No, what sin was he talking about? When you have an article, it forces you back to ask the question, well, what sin have you been talking about? And we can go all the way back to chapter 3, verse 9, when he talks about that we are under the penalty of sin, that we are under this, 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 this reign of sin that when we are born in this world, we're born in sin, and the principle, the dominion of sin is master over us. Um, That is just a truth that everyone born in this world finds himself in. But based on what he has just said in chapter 5, shall we, are we to continue in that reign of sin, in the sin, in the, the dominating force of sin in our life? Shall we continue to struggle with old habits and old ways of thinking and, 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 and uh, just old sinful actions? Shall we remain, shall sin remain as our master? The answer, verse 2, no, may it never be. And he raises this very, very important uh, principle. How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? Um, James Boyce in his commentary says this, to understand this statement is to understand how to live a holy life. And because it is, uh, and because it is the key to sanctification, he says, I would go so far as to say that Romans 6, 2, the verse we just read, is the most important verse in the Bible for believers in evangelical churches to understand today. That's his opinion, but... I think, I, I agree, it, it may, maybe it's not the most important, but it's got to be up there in the top. Let's hear it again. How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? This is, gets at the heart of sanctification, of living a holy life. How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? The verbal form there is, it's, you know, the Greek it's called an aorist tense, which means it's a definitive action in a point in time. We have died to sin. The idea of death being to be separated from. Um, 
a radical separation. It's more than just a, a, a turning my back on something or a walking away from something or divorcing myself from something. This is something radical. Paul said, I have died to something, a radical separation. I have died to the sin, the, the reign of sin, the dominion of sin, the clutches of sin in my life. So being dead to sin means that we have experienced because of new birth, we are no longer in bondage to the control of sin over our life. Now, it's, it's not saying that we cannot sin anymore, but it is saying that because of our union with Christ, we have this new ability, supernatural ability, to no longer sin. That's a radical statement. Now, we might say, well, I, I mean, that's just the way I am. I mean, everybody knows I'm a grouch. That's just, that's just the way I am. <laughs> or everybody knows I, you know, I, I have an anger problem, but that's just the way I am. And you talk about uh, so-and-so, well, yeah, he's kind of a pain in the rear, but, you know, that's just the way he is. I've all, that's how I, I've always known him that way. That's just, that's just who he is. No, it's not. How have we who have died to sin continue to live in it? Or we can say, uh, you know, I, can, I just can't help it. That's just the way I was raised. Man, if you would have grown up in my home, you know, abuse or, or neglect or, or, you know, being told I was, wasn't going to amount to anything or, you know, I just, that talk that came into my life all the time. Well, if, if you grew up in my environment you would know that there's a reason why I, I kind of act that way. And the, Paul would say, well, so? How shall we who have died to sin continue to live in it? And someone might say, well, but that's just, you know, it's just my DNA. You know, it's the way my dad was. It was the way my grandpa was. It's just kind of a, a carry trait. So? How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? This is where Paul is going. This is a statement of fact. Aorist tense, it's a done, completed, definitive act. We have died to sin. Okay, so we say, I died to sin. When did I die? How did that happen? Why, why, why am I dead to sin? And starting in verse 3, Paul's going to explain that through a very important term. Um, uh, the Greek word is baptizo. Obviously, it's our English word baptism. So verse 3 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? Therefore we, verse 4, have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So the idea of baptism is a term that literally means to be plunged into, to be immersed into something, to be uh, totally, totally um, uh, placed within. It was used of a, of a piece of cloth that was dipped into some dye, a solution of dye. A white cloth dipped into red dye. The white cloth comes out red. It's immersed into it. It's so identified with the red dye. Um, and that's the idea. Baptizo is a word to means to, to cause to be identified with somebody. Um, so when, um, 
if I place this marker into that book and I close that book, it's totally immersed. It's identified. And when we moved out of the realm of Adam into the realm of Christ, we were baptized into Christ, spiritually identified with Christ, identified with his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, so that what became true of Jesus becomes true of us in our identity as a believer in Jesus Christ. So verse 3 and 4, we have been baptized, identified with, immersed into. We were placed into Christ, into spiritual union with him. We were taken out of the old environment of Adam. And sin and everything that defined us in Adam, we were placed in a new environment uh, in Christ where righteousness and life reign. Um, Paul's point uh, in bringing up our identification then in Christ is two, two, two things he wants to emphasize. Sin no longer identifies us. Resurrection life now identifies us. Um, they're related concepts. So you look at verse 4 again. Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism in de into death, so that then as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life, in newness of life. So, why did God arrange for our death and our transference of our identity, our baptism into Christ? So that his identity becomes ours. He could exchange our old life for his new life. The great exchange. This marvel ex exchange. It's the idea, of, well, it's probably not the best illustration, but you got a dead battery in your car, you bring another car there, you hook up the battery cables, you turn it on, and the, you know, the, the life from the uh, good battery flows to the bad battery, it starts up. No, uh, um, uh, no strength of its, of its own. It is a dead battery that is now receiving life because of the life that's been transferred to it. We are radically different because of our identity in Christ. This is what Paul is trying to communicate. Um, so, dead to sin, and that's only half the story. Verse 5 then says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. If united in his death, certainly in uh, his resurrection. So God is not simply slapped a new identity on an old person. He has transformed us completely in terms of who we are at our essential, our essential core being. Newness of life raised up, miraculously changed because of our union, our identity, our baptism with Christ. Getting out of the in-Adam circle into the in-Christ circle and it radically changes, changes us. New life because of Christ. And that's, we could say that's what the idea of being born again means, or the theologians call it regeneration. Re regeneration. Uh, newness of life, new creations in Christ. God exchanges the old for the new, the spiritual dead man in Adam for the spiritually alive, regenerated man in Christ. So if we know Jesus as our personal Savior, whether we feel like it or even act like it, we are radically changed and new in Christ. 
That's on the authority of God's word that we say that. Not on the authority of how I'm performing at the moment or how I'm feeling at the moment. It's how God sees me. It's by uh, the, the verdict from God himself uh, because of my union with Christ. And this is crucial to understand for a person to live a holy life because no one is going to live a life that's contradicting how they perceive themselves. No one is going to live uh, in a manner that is, that is opposite of how they perceive themselves. And so what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 6 He's, he's, he's changing our thinking and giving us truth to believe about who we really are. So we don't have to live like we once did because we're not the people we once were. It's crucial. It's crucial. We, could, we don't have the time, but we could go to Colossians chapter 3. And he says, uh, he, he lays this all out. It says, because you, you, you're new. You don't have to live this way because you're, you're, you're new in Christ. So the facts are clear. We have died to sin. We are alive to God, all because at the moment of faith, we were transferred and identified with Christ. So Galatians 2.20 will say, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. Um, Colossians 3.3 says, for you have died and your life is hidden in Christ. Or Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, he's rescued us from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Uh, we are not the same people we once were in Adam. Okay, yep, but hey, I still sin. I still struggle with sin. Um, and so we focus on that and we come and really begin to believe I'm not a new creation in Christ. I'm still the old rotten sinner I once was because I still struggle with sin. And sin and a life of sin has become so almost so normal in the life of a Christian that, that to have victory over sin almost seems abnormal. When in reality, the Apostle Paul is saying, no, the normal Christian experience is a life free of sin. It's a life of victory. The old self is gone. And so the new self is what needs to identify us. Um, let me just add this real quickly. That's why the, the Bible does not teach that we as believers in Jesus Christ um, still have that old sin nature. We don't. We'll see that in just a moment in the next verse. We have one new regenerated person. We are a new creation in Christ. Um, it's no, no more feasible to call a believer a new man and an old man at the same time than it is to call him a saved and lost person at the same time. The old man is gone. So let's get into chapter 6, verse 6. All of this is speaking of the fact of our identification. Starting in verse 6, Paul's going to talk about the impact of this. So verse 6 and 7, knowing this, what we've just, everything we've just talked about. Knowing our baptism in Christ, our identification in Christ, our new creatureliness, our regenerated self, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we no longer be slaves to sin. 
For he who has died is freed from sin. This is the heart of sanctification. This is the, the life of holiness. This is what every believer in Jesus Christ can experience. So in verse 6, Paul is affirming, knowing this, our old self, or some translations say the old man, that who we were in Adam, was crucified with Christ. In order that, there's the purpose clause, the body of sin might be done away with. Now, this is, this is where it gets fuzzy. Because the body of sin, what is the body of sin? The old man and the body of sin are two separate things. The old man has been crucified, dead, buried, cast away. So that the body of sin might now be, and the phrase is, rendered inoperative, neutralized. Um, I think one translation says, uh, the old King James says, destroyed. But it, it literally means to be neutralized, to be rendered ineffective, powerless. Put in a place of, of the, the, pulled the plug on, and there's no power to it anymore. Our true identity is in Christ. The old man has been crucified so that the body of sin. Now, what is the body of sin? I believe what Paul is developing here is our physical bodies. Our spiritual selves, our new regenerated, raised up with Christ to newness of life, new creations, are encased in a body of sin. And it's vulnerable or susceptible to the world, the flesh, the devil. Paul is not saying our physical bodies are inherently evil, but he, when he speaks of the body of sin, he means the physical bodies can be instruments or vehicles through which sin can work at the level of lusts, at the level of the drawings like a magnet away from, from Christ. We say, wait a, minute, wait a minute, I thought sin was gone. No, sin is still very much present. The old self, our old identity has been changed, is gone. That reign of king sin as a principle and dominating factor is gone. Uh, the sentence of serving sin as a master has been removed. Uh, but sin, and we'll see that in chapter 7, can be very, very present. Um, uh, we, we, Paul is talking about our experience, our experience. So look at the flow of this again. Um, of verse 6 and 7. He is saying... Um, the old self is crucified. So that the body of sin is rendered powerless. And then what does he say? So that, verse 7, our last part of verse 6, so that we no longer are slaves. No longer ex the experience of slavery, no longer slaves to sin. This is true of us, which leads us to understand this so that this will no longer... This is where we want to get to in our Christian experience, right down here. In authentic fellowship and relationship with other believers, as we meet with other believers, this is where we want to get to. 
so that their experience is not being enslaved to, to that experiential slavery to sin. Because, verse 7, for he who has died is freed from sin. It's a statement of fact again. We want to get here because this is who we are. This is our identity, freed from sin. The problem is, many of us as believers, we still struggle with being captivated by sin, still caught in the clutches of it. Why did I say that? Why did I do that? Why, these thoughts, why, where do they come from? Well, the old self is dead. There's a body of sin that needs to be rendered powerless. Old ways of thinking, old ways of, of, of relating can be enhanced or be enticed through the lusts that draw in our weaknesses, through this body of sin. And this is where it gets fuzzy, I realize. Hey, what of, what of you is going to live forever? What of you is eternal right now, who you are? It's your, your spirit, the inner you. That's eternal. The moment we trust Christ, that is eternal. What of us is going to drop dead one day? The body of sin, because it has not been redeemed. One day, the body of sin will be resurrected in the, and the, the, a resurrected body with an already in, eternal spirit joined together will be in glory. Praise God. Uh, the very presence of sin and the power of sin, it'll all be gone, never to be dealt with again. But we're still encased in a body of sin. And how that all works, I'm not sure. But through the lusts that, and, that, and drawing us through maybe sickness and weakness and things like that, it plays on us and draws us like a magnet to sin. In chapter 7, as we'll get to in just a moment, it's called the flesh. It's called the flesh. So the first step in living for Christ is believing what God has said about me is really true. It's my spiritual identity. Verse 8 now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ had been raised from the dead is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. And that would be true of us, spiritually. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. And the life he lives, he lives for God. And so verse 11, here's the logical conclusion. Even so, therefore, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Because that's our spiritual identity. That is what is true of us. I no longer have to live a certain way or do certain things because I'm not the person I once was. I'm free of that. So reckon it to be true. Um, so do we really know, do we really believe that we have a, a new identity in Christ? That starts with us. Do we believe that? When we're working with people in authentic fellowship, we're sitting down and seeing people struggle in, in, a, in their old habits and it's affecting their marriage or their, their work or whatever it might be in life and they're just being almost living in defeat over and over and over again, it starts by helping them see, wait a minute, that is not who you are. The cross took care of that. The you're new. And no one is going to live in a way that's inconsistent with how they perceive themselves. And so Paul says, verse 6, knowing this, then the body of sin can be neutralized and slavery to sin can be, um, be gone. So based on those facts, verse 12 and 13, Paul makes some key exhortations. So verse 12 and 13, it picks up with verse 6 uh, and answers the question, how can this body of sin be rendered inoperative or powerless or ineffective? And there's some 
key choices that we have to make. So look at verse uh, 12. Therefore, so here's this logical conclusion again. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. <laughs> here's the first choice. Don't let sin reign. That's a, a present tense imperative. It's an ongoing command. Do not let sin reign in your dying bodies, in your mortal bodies. Um, that reign of sin in my inner man is over, he says. So don't let it continue so that you obey the desires of the, 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 the flesh, the desires to, to satisfy sinful master, the, the, the temptations that lure, uh, lure us away from Christ. It's a command that is possible to obey. Otherwise, he would have never given it to us. Sin must be dethroned in an experiential way. Don't let it reign. It's a choice we have to make. Second choice. He goes on, verse 13. And do not go on presenting the members of your body. That's another present tense imperative. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin. In other words, don't place the members of your body at, at sin's disposal. Don't, don't present your bodies to let sin take advantage of it. Stop making the members of your body as instruments, and it's a Greek term that refers to warfare, uh, battle, battlement, armaments, so warfare, weapons of unrighteousness. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9? He says, I buffet my body, I beat it into subjection. This is discipline. We used to sing a little song in Sunday school when I was growing up. Well, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Well, be careful, be careful, little ears, what you hear. There's a father up above, then he's looking down in love. So be careful, little eyes, ears, nose, mouth, mouth, and feet. We didn't get it when we were singing it as kids because we just want to see how fast we could say, ears, I don't have feet. <laughs> and then I'd get home and my mom would say, your little ears, yeah. your little mouth. Oh, it was a big mouth for Mark. <laughs> be careful, little hands. This is what Paul is saying. Got a problem with seeing things on the internet that we shouldn't see? Don't present the members of your body, your eyes, to be put in a position where that can happen. Get rid of it. Shut it off. Figure it out different ways. Um, guard uh, how we place the members of our bodies as instruments of unrighteousness. That's a choice. Third choice. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. Now, the first two commands were present imperatives. Ongoing, this is what we do. This is an aorist imperative, which means a definitive, uh, uh, definitive act. Present yourselves to God as alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness. Present yourself a definitive occurrence. Now, Paul will develop that a little bit more in, in chapter 12, verse uh, 1 and 2. As living sacrifices, you present yourself before God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to Him, holy and acceptable to Him, which is our reasonable service of worship. It's reasonable because it's who we are. So, um, we present ourselves to God in a definitive act. It says, and, and it may be a repeated definitive act, um, every day. It may mean getting up in the morning and saying, I present myself to you. In the moment of the conflict, I'm going to present, Lord, this body is yours. 
what I say with these lips, what I hear with these ears, what I watch with these eyes. I'm sometimes stunned at born-again Christians going to see certain movies at the Alamo Theater, and let me just be a little old-fashioned here, that no Christian should go see. Why would you subject your eyes and your body to the stuff that's being shown from Hollywood? Don't present the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness. Guard it. Fight it. This is warfare language. It's a choice we have to make. Now, what's at stake? Why is this so important? Let me jump over a lot of verses and go to verse 23. We often use this verse, and it's a salvation, eternal salvation. It's more of a practical, daily salvation, sanctification verse. For the wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he's going on and develops this wonderful, uh, as it's built from obviously the, the earlier chapters in Romans, but he's just simply saying, because of God's grace, because of who we are in Christ, because of our new identity in Christ, which all is the reign of grace, it's all because of his favor. But the wages of sin, what we get if we continue letting King sin dominate is the experience of death. And there are believers in Jesus Christ who are walking around, their heart is pumping, they've got a great pulse, blood pressure of 120 over 70, (laughs) and they are dead. There's no life. They're not living in the abundance and the victory that is theirs for Christ. They're not living eternal life. And this is what this verse, I think, is telling us. The wages of sin is death. It's the experience of death every time. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Life and death. So, Chapter 6, this is what, these are the things we must affirm. Our death, burial, and resurrection with Christ, who we are as new creations in Christ. Chapter 7, it's what we must admit so that we can get to chapter 8, what we must allow. Chapter 6 is the mechanics of sanctification. Uh, chapter 8 is the dynamics, the Holy Spirit. But chapter 7 is the monkey wrench and the whole thing that, that can mess it all up. Let's look at chapter 7 now. Paul's going to make three admissions here in chapter 7. And then back them up with proof and then uh, draw a conclusion. So three admissions that start with a statement, then he gives proof, and then he brings a conclusion. So here's the first admission. Let's look at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage of sin. For what I'm doing, I don't understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. We're talking about experiential, our experiential life. Verse 16, but if I'm doing the very thing I don't want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. And so now, verse 17, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. The statement there is verse 14, um, Paul admits that he finds himself enslaved again to the sin which he has already been freed from. Paul is going to develop, this is, 
he's taking a piece, a slice of his life, and he's saying, here's the statement, I'm finding myself in bondage again. The proof of that bondage, verse 15 and 16, the good I want to do, I don't. I'm in bondage. And his conclusion in verse 17, so now, no longer am I the one doing it. Oh, wait a minute. It was you, Paul, who just derided one of your coworkers. It was you, Paul, who just blurted out that sinful word and thought. Don't put that on anybody else. But what does he say? It's no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. What in the world is Paul saying here? Well, remember his new identity in Christ. Who is Paul? Is he a no good, dirty, depraved, rotten sinner? No, he's a new creation in Christ. And he's saying in a theological truth, I'm not the one doing it. The new, regenerated, resurrected me, I'm not doing it. But there is a principle, he says, within me, a power that is exercising a dominating influence within me. There's a principle that sin still dwells in me. Admission number two, verse 18. For, he says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. The statement here, and by the way, the NIV says sinful nature, not a good translation. I know that there is nothing good that dwells in me that is in my, and the word is flesh. And the flesh is a capacity within each one of us, a capacity within each one of us to live independently of God. And Paul says, I know there's still a capacity. There's something within me. It is not my true identity. It is no longer I. But there is something, a capacity that dwells within me. The proof, last part of verse 18, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good, verse 19, that I want, I don't do. In fact, I practice the very evil that I don't want. Something is happening in me. But yet I have been raised up the newness of life in Christ. I'm a new creation in Christ. Where is this coming? What is happening? His conclusion, verse 20, um, but, if I, but if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but there is sin which dwells within me. There is something still within me. Here's a third admission by Paul, starting in verse 21. His statement, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the very one who wants to do good. Here's the proof of that, verse 22. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, my true identity, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and it makes me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is where? In my members. The inner me, raised up with new identity in Christ, is encased in a body of sin, susceptible and vulnerable to the temptations and the draw of sin, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the boastful pride of life. Um, What's his conclusion? Verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who will set me free from what? the body of this death. Oh, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, 
So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind, I'm serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. And this is the spiritual battle. This is where we find ourselves in maybe many times. It's when people that we're working with, that we're in authentic fellowship and and, and beginning to disciple or counsel or work with. There is this war, there's this struggle, and sometimes it's so great that you just want to give up. We had friends of ours, dear friends of ours, and it'll be 20 years ago, coming up in May, and he had a, a, a struggle with drugs. He was born again. In one sense, he loved Jesus, and he raised those four little boys. He loved the Lord, and yet he struggled with cocaine addiction. And they moved away from here, ended up living in, down by Atlanta. And he, he got away from authentic fellowship, I think, in one sense. <coughs> and we got a call one day. He had gone, drove off someplace to some abandoned road and took his life. The struggle was just too, oh, wretched man that I am. And that young man never found victory. But the sad thing is, it was already his It was already his. And when he just needed help uh, in authentic fellowship, I think, in teaching him how to present his members, how to work with, how to understand his true identity in Christ. Thanks be to God. And this is the hope we have. So chapter 7 ends with this note of hope, this uh, um, great opportunity of, of, of the spiritual war. There can be victory in it. Um. Let me just say something a little bit more about the flesh. Again, this is summary, obviously. But each one of us as a believer in Jesus Christ still struggle with this principle of evil that is within us. Um, we, 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 all, uh, we all deal with it. Um, the, um, the... the the fact of the matter is, we'll never be set free of it until this body of sin, this mortal, is putting on immortality. It'll be a constant struggle, but we can progressively find victory over it when we understand this principle of the flesh. The flesh is that anti-God, self-reliant aspect that each one of us has within us. It's the source of all sin, and it engages in complete resistance to the Holy Spirit that is within us. After we get saved, after we acquire that new nature, we become new creations in Christ. The old man is crucified, yet there still remains within us a capacity to think, to feel, to behave like the old creation, like the old man that has already been put to death at the cross. That capacity for evil, Paul uses this phrase, the flesh. One commentator, William Barclay, puts it this way, the flesh is the great enemy of the Christian life. It's the bridgehead through which sin invades the human personality. The flesh is like the enemy within the gates who opens the way to the enemy who is passing in through the gates. The lust of the eyes, the the world's influence. The satanic uh, forces of darkness. The flesh is the traitor that resides within the gate of, uh, of who we are. It's the most dangerous enemy that we face because it, it, it's found deep within us and it opens that door uh, for us to find defeat 
in, in, in life. It's a magnet that draws us away. So when someone, when someone harms me, it's the flesh that entices me to, to protect myself, to build up a wall. When someone else gets the glory, it's the flesh in me that says, I, I need to put them down. When I get depressed over something, it's the flesh that wants me to go to the refrigerator door and open it up and feed myself. <laughs> when someone criticizes me, it's the flesh in me that says, I'm going to avoid that person at all costs. If they come down that hall, I'm going down that hall. When I have failed at something and my failure has been shown to people, it's the flesh in me that says, I'm going to redouble my efforts. I never want to be a failure again. When I succeed at something, it's the flesh in me that entices me to say, oh, look what I've done. Oh, did you see what I just did, folks? It's that, that warfare that rages. It's that principle that incessantly works to draw me away. It's the traitor in the gates. The conflict is real. And it's energized, Paul says, it's energized by the law, by the law, by human effort. Um, and again, we don't have time to go to the first part of Romans chapter 7, but that's what he's talking about. Legalism, the law, abide, being under the law, a go-it-alone Christianity, I'll do it myself Christianity. The pronoun I or me is used 47 times in Romans chapter 7. 47 times. I, 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 me, 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 me. Romans 7 is a picture of, of a man trying to obey God in his own strength and his own power. And it's a miserable failure. The law said, don't covet. Paul says, I, I, I produce covet in me in every kind. Don't do that. And in our own strength, okay, I'm, and it, it leads to failure and failure and failure. Me, myself, and I. Romans 7 is a picture of go-it-alone Christianity. Now, folks, again, this is where authentic fellowship comes in. Because for the most part, every one of us are raised in a home and an environment in a society that says, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. My goodness, we have Christian programs that, you know, learn the 10 memory verses and you get awards. It's great to learn memory verses, and, but... It, it's, it's, it's this whole idea of just work, 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 do, do, do. And it's law thinking, legalism can, can creep in. This is where Paul is finding himself. I'm going to do this. I'm going to fight this. I'm going to win this. I Just defeat, defeat, defeat. And we talk about it's, it, it's in your notes, um, the three basic levels of power. There's divine power. And there's the devil who energizes the world and the flesh. And then there's human power, level three. We've talked about this many times here at Fellowship. And the principle is that a lower level of power can never defeat a higher level of power. So human power is no match for the powerful influence of the world, the principle of indwelling sin, the flesh that is found, the traitor within the gates, and it's certainly no match for Satan. So what is the hope for level three? None in and of itself. And that's what Romans 7 has shown. The good I want to do, I don't. I do the very thing I hate. That's level three power trying to go it alone. So we got to get plugged into level one power. That's the only possible way that level three can have success in living this life. 
Galatians 5.16. Again, we don't have time to turn there. But Galatians 5.16. Walk by the Spirit, and you will in no way carry out the desires of the flesh. How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? How shall we who have died to sin still walk in it? And what Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 is, if we appropriate the resource of the level one power to walk in sin, to have that manifest itself in our life, is an impossibility. You will in no way carry out the desires of the flesh. Two negatives are used. In English, you use two negatives that count, they cancel each other's out, right? And it means a positive. Not in the Greek language. That's just for emphasis. It is impossible. No way will you carry out the desires of the flesh. And it gives that whole list of what the flesh is. So for Paul, the issue of success in living the Christian life came down to the source of power. And that leads us to Romans 8. Romans 6, what we must affirm, our new identity in Christ. We have got to be locked and loaded on that and understand that and be reminded of that over and over and over and make the choices of not presenting ourselves but that definitive work of trusting and yielding to him. Romans 7, yeah, but if I do it on my own, this is what I must admit. I'm going to end up in defeat all the time. The process of sanctification is never going to go forward. Holiness is never going to be shown up in my life. The good I want to do, I won't do. Oh, wretched man that I am. But in Romans chapter 8, this is what we must allow. And it's the Holy Spirit's power, enabling power within us. Now, here's an interesting fact. In the first seven chapters of Romans, the word Holy Spirit or the Spirit, the reference to the Holy Spirit, is only found four times. Four times. I just mentioned in Romans 7, the last chapter, I or my, me is found 47 times. Uh, the Holy Spirit is only used four times in Romans 1 through 7. You come to Romans chapter 8, 19 times the focus is on the Holy Spirit. So he's now going to talk about level one power and how it works within us. So let's um, look at verse one. Back to verse one. Kind of jumped ahead there in the notes. Look how verse one begins. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a great verse coming off of what he just said in verse 25 or verse 24. Oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to set me free? Who's going to set me free? There's therefore now no condemnation. Where do we see that word condemnation before? Chapter 5. Do you remember what the word meant? How much time do I have? Ten minutes. Chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 16, verse 18, condemnation. It's a word that it was katakrima. It meant penal servitude. It meant the sentence of sin that had been placed on us because we are in Adam. And the sentence was, you will serve King Sin. You have proven, you have shown that you are in Adam. The sentence upon you is that sin will now master you. You are forced to serve in slavery, sin, the rest of your life. There is now, right now, no penal servitude. We have been set free. The chains have been removed. 
The sentence has been erased. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in the sphere of Christ. For the law of sin, and, uh, uh, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin, from that principle of death. We have been set free. It's a definitive truth act. Verse 3, for what the law could not do, weak as it was to the flesh, so the law could say, hey, don't do that. Well, stop doing that. Oh, yeah, I know I need to. Oh, don't do that. Oh, don't covet. Oh, yeah, yeah, and try, try, try. What the law could not do, weak as it was to the flesh. God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That's his judicial work, justification. So that, verse four, here's the, here's the purpose. Why did Christ go to the cross? Why did he pay for our sins? Why the resurrection? He's given us one example. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let that soak in. What's the requirement of the law? Holiness, sanctification. That's the goal we're after. That's the whole point of this little talk. Sanctification, to be like Christ. You shall be holy as I am holy. Holiness, that's the requirement of the law. And it says so that the requirement of the law might be, might be fulfilled in us. How? Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The law's requirement of perfection, of righteousness, is fulfilled in us through His enabling power, the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, for those who walk or live their life according to the flesh, they set their minds on things of the flesh. Those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And verse 6, for the mind set on the things... For on the flesh is death, but the mind that is set on the spirit is life and peace. The mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Remember, if we set our minds on the flesh, that is our own human efforts or the enticements that draw us away, we set our minds and we occupy our thoughts with old sinful habits or things that little eyes should not see, little ears should not hear, go to places that we should not go? If we set our minds on things of the flesh, what we will experience, the wages of sin is death. Spiritual death. It's the ugliness of a Christian who's just despondent, no joy, no life. But the mindset on the spirit is life, is peace, and you could add in Galatians 5, all the fruit of the Spirit that comes from that. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, verse 7. And it does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I think those are talking about unbelievers. When you're in the flesh. But, if you're, but Christians who are no longer in the flesh, we're in Christ. We can still be enticed to walk according to the flesh. That's the old flesh that's within us, Romans 7. Verse 8, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you're not in the flesh, you're in the Spirit. Then Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone doesn't have the Spirit of God, he doesn't belong to him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. 
And if the Spirit of Him, verse 11, raised Jesus from the dead and dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. That is, you can experience right now, this side of heaven, life, eternal life like it was meant to be lived. And in the day to come, at the resurrection. So then, conclusion, verse 12. Brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to it. For if you're living according to the flesh, you're going to die. You must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's Romans 6. Present the members of your body. Fight it. Put it to death. Buffet my body. Beat it into subjection. This is where, by the way, the spiritual disciplines come in. Um, it's crucial. Uh, I think that's in the, the student notes. The spiritual disciplines come in. Let me just suggest four things about setting your mind. Setting your mind on things. Start with uh, five things. Start with confession. It's a heartfelt acknowledgement, agreement with God. My sin has grieved the Holy Spirit. I've quenched the Spirit. And so then consecration and control. I'm presenting myself to you. Definitive act. Lord, today, I confess my sins, but now, I, Father, I, 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 I'm just consecrating myself to you. Take my life and let it be. And then communion. It's walking by the Spirit. It's time spent with the Lord. It's time spent with Him in His Word, in fellowship, in authentic fellowship with the fellow believers. Four, conformity, obey, resolve to obey God's word, apply it to your life. When I come to understand God's direction for me, then I do it. And the fifth one is community. Again, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, encouraging one another, as long as it's still called today, run the race. See, fight the fight. We need that authentic fellowship with each other. Otherwise, the flesh wears its ugly head. A mind that was beset on the flesh. Again, when you see someone else get the glory, all of a sudden that flesh rears up. Jealousy. When you hear something, uh, uh, an enemy of yours, something bad happens, you rejoice over it. And it's all of a sudden your mind, and instead of being placed on the Word of God and having the Word of God cleanse us and change our thinking, and we take every thought captive as uh, the, the... the exchanging of the old ways of thinking to truth, the spiritual disciplines, then we find freedom in Christ. And so he says in uh, verse 14, so for all who are being led by the Spirit, these are children of God. That is the experience of being the child of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear, You have received a spirit of adoption of sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Why should we not live holy lives when we are children of God and we cry, Abba, Father? The Spirit testifies with our spirit. We are children of God. And then it goes on to a whole other subject. And if children were heirs of God, praise God, and were fellow heirs with Christ. Oh, that's a different category if we suffer with him so that we can be glorified with him. And he starts another whole section on about suffering. This is a really quick walkthrough. What must I affirm my new identity in Christ? What must I admit? There's a war raging. And if I try to live this Christian life in my own strength under the law and just do it and grit my teeth, 
I'm going to find the principle of the flesh of evil within me will rear its head every time. And so what must I allow? I got to get out of the way. Let the Holy Spirit. I got to walk according to the Spirit. I've got to be situated in the Word. I've got to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. I've got to spend time in community of the saints. I've got to confess my sins and consecrate myself to Him on a daily basis. I've got to understand, though, that there is therefore now no katakrima for those who are in Christ. I am no longer a slave to sin. I have a new identity. And I don't have to live this way anymore. I am free. I have been set free. That's how we live a holy life. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. And Father, I, I know um, the depth of your word is so much greater than what we can fully even understand. So continue through your Holy Spirit to teach us and lead us into truth, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.